Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Britain, 60 CE. A Roman army of around 10,000 stands its ground. To their backs and flanks is a forest. In front of them is gathered an army they consider barbarians of more than ten times their number. There is no way out. The horde before them had destroyed three Roman cities, killing everyone in their path. At stake was nothing more or less than the future of the whole island. Would the Romans be driven out of Britannia, or would they defeat this last great native rebellion. As the Roman legionaries looked out at the men they would be fighting, they would have seen a figure address them, whipping them up into a frenzy. Tall, golden-haired and ferocious, the British general cut quite a figure. But what was most extraordinary was not their eloquence or their bellicosity. It was the fact that she was a woman. She was Boudicca of the Iceni, a woman wronged by Rome and determined to have her revenge. Suddenly, the entire enemy army charged towards the Romans, shouting and screaming blue murder. But the legionaries were well trained. Instead of turning and running into the trees, they picked up their javelins and fired. And welcome to the other half. Episode 3.2, Boudicca, Warrior Woman of the Iceni. Boudicca's story is instantly familiar to generations of English schoolchildren. We may know different versions of the tale, taught in schools and repeated on TV, in films and portrayed in art. We may have seen her likeness in statues, or listened to speeches extolling her virtues and example. She was a real historical figure living in the first century CE, and we know a bit about her, relatively speaking. Her rebellion was covered by two of the great Roman historians of the early empire, but neither of them were there at the time, and indeed were writing many years later. They reported what they believed to be true, 
but also frame their narratives to support their own beliefs and in ways their audiences would have understood. This has then later been repeated by writers and historians in coming centuries, with Boudicca variously seen as a senseless barbarian, a noble savage, a feminist icon, and a freedom fighter. Thus, the facts, such as we can make out, are obscured by the romance and the drama of her life, making her, of course, an ideal first subject for this third season of the podcast. So today we're going to first look at the land in which she lived and died, and then examine who she was and why she rebelled against Rome. I have to say that, after spending so much time in modern history with this plethora of sources, it's been kind of wonderful to get back into the kind of history that I fell in love with as a student, where things are murkier, where it's not so much a question of picking your sources as desperately trying to read as much as you can from the one or two that you have. At heart, I will always be more comfortable in ancient and medieval history, and it has been such a delight to be reading some old friends, as well as some new ones for this series. Thanks to everyone who has been commenting already on the show's discussion page on the Lyceum app. I've really appreciated all the lovely feedback and look forward to continuing the conversation with you on the app. I'm also going to be making a little more of an effort on the show's social media pages. Whenever I talk to other podcast people, they always say, oh, it's so important to be active on social. And yes, that is what hip media folks call it. And I used to somewhat mumble agreement, all the while thinking about where I can find the next cup of tea. Well, of course, they were right, and it's been long past time where I spent more attention on my social media platforms, especially Twitter. So, if you want to follow the show, it's at OtherHalfPod on Twitter, and just search for The Other Half Podcast on Facebook. I'll be mostly talking about the show, and sharing any interesting stories I come across. Alright, that's enough of that, let's get started. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The island of Great Britain, known as Britannia to the Romans, was one of the last great frontiers of the Roman Empire. Before the Roman invasions, first by Julius Caesar, and then by the armies of the Emperor Claudius, not much was known about this mysterious damp island north of Gaul. It was made up of a collection of tribal kingdoms, whose lives were based around war and agriculture. They were not united in any sense, but had complex alliance structures based around kinship. Think of them as being like the city-states of ancient Greece as a comparison, though their political and societal structures weren't quite so advanced. They shared similar religions, language, and Celtic identity, but they were as likely to be at war with one another as they were to be allied. Giving a precise number of how many there were is a little tricky to do, but the number stands somewhere between 30 and 40, one of which was the Iceni. Located in modern East Anglia, they were a wealthy kingdom whose economy was largely focused on metalware and horses, and was based, at least in part, on coinage. 
After the successful Roman invasion in 43, the Iceni became allies of Rome and were allowed to retain their own land, keep their own king, and mint their own coins. They weren't independent of Rome, they were a client kingdom that maintained broad autonomy in return for allegiance to the empire and the payment of taxes. They almost certainly didn't exactly welcome the invaders' presence, but were canny enough to know that accepting their domination willingly was a far safer approach than trying to take on the legions. As for the Romans, well, they had a rather simplistic view of the Britons. They saw them as barbarians, little different to the Gauls who had been subjugated by Julius Caesar. They had been attracted to Britannia because of its rich mineral resources, but also simply because it was just there, inhabited by peoples that they considered politically and militarily inferior. The Roman conquests saw them set up a number of settlements, including military bases, small towns and cities which served as regional capitals. There were many cultural differences between the Romans and the Britons, but one of the ones that is most important for our story is their differing positions on women. Now we, of course, did a whole season on Roman empresses where we discussed this in detail, but in summary, Roman women had very few legal rights. They were the property of their father until marriage, and then of their husband until their death. They could not vote in elections, serve in the legions, or hold any legal rights over their children. When they married, everything they owned passed their husband. They were expected to be mistresses of the household, be scrupulously moral, and portray a strong maternal example. Things were quite different in the tribes of Britannia. Celtic women lived much freer lives. While no Roman woman had ever been emperor or served as consul, Celtic queens regnant were not uncommon. They were also known to be warriors and could lead men into battle, something that would have sent shivers down Roman spines. Don't get me wrong, it was still an intensely patriarchal society, and Celtic women were still viewed as the property of men, but they were far freer than their Roman counterparts. Our two main sources for this period are two old friends of the podcast, Publius Cornelius Tacitus and Lucius Cassius Dio. They were major sources for our series on the Roman empresses, and reading them again is a bit like putting on a snug warm jumper. It's worth talking about them a little bit in detail, as their views and styles have significantly coloured our view of what is about to happen. I'm going to start with Tacitus, and instead of trying to write something original, I'm just going to go ahead and quote myself here from episode 1.1. Tacitus has a massive bee in his bonnet when it comes to women. Some historians have accused Tacitus of having a pathological hatred or fear of women, but others have defended him as having been someone who merely reflected the best wisdom of his time, no worse or better than any Roman man. Some have even defended him as having an appropriate attitude towards female power, but I reckon we can simply push that to one side. There is no doubt in my mind that he was someone who did not so much hate women as fear them. He saw the idea of women being in power as being inherently wrong, and so, if they were there, it must be because they lied, tricked, or murdered their way there, and they must be lying, tricking, and murdering in order to stay there. I will add that what is of particular interest to us is that he did value women when they were fighting for virtuous causes, such as liberty, 
virtue, and the lives of their family. When they fought in a masculine way, as in for power and influence and wealth, well then, that leads inexorably towards death and destruction. He wrote two accounts of Boudicca's revolt, one in his Life of Agricola, or De Vitae Agricolae, in around 98 CE, and the second in his Annals, or Annales, in the mid-110s. This means that he was writing within living memory of the revolt. He was also the son-in-law of a former governor of Britannia, meaning that he would have had better knowledge than most about the island and its people. Cassius Dio was writing about 50 years after Tacitus, and while he does seem to have access to sources that Tacitus did not, his distance from events is an issue when it comes to his account. That said, he does offer quite a bit more detail than Tacitus, and so is vital to our understanding of this period. Unfortunately, I didn't give any background on Cassius Dio before, so I'll need to do some original work here. He is no less misogynistic than Tacitus, as we shall see, and is at pains to portray Boudicca as other, as someone entirely divorced from the civilised world. While Tacitus often emphasises her femininity as a wife and mother, Cassius Dio portrays her in a hyper-masculine way. This is to contrast her from some of the feminised men in Rome, most notably the Emperor Nero. To him, she is a ferocious, monstrous, barbarian queen, to be feared rather than admired. Which brings us neatly on to examining exactly what we know about the heroine of this episode. Of her early life, we know very, very little. What is quite mysterious about her is that, other than the accounts from Tacitus and Cassius Dio, there is absolutely no record of her. There is certainly no surviving written evidence of her from the British side, and archaeologists cannot find any coins or inscriptions that mention her. This means that we are almost entirely dependent on Romans to tell us what she was like and what she did. Which is, of course, somewhat problematic. But let's not get hung up on what we don't know. Well, actually, we shall for a little bit longer, as we don't know if she was a member of the Iceni tribe by birth, or whether she married into it. But it was likely that she was from the rough area of modern Essex and East Anglia. Any estimation of her age is an educated guess, with an emphasis on the guess, but it is likely that she was born around 30 CE, and was therefore a child or young teenager during the initial Roman invasion in 43. She would have seen the great influx of foreign soldiers, and the transformation of the town of Camulodunum, modern-day Colchester, into a great Roman fortress city. If she had ever been up the Thames, she would have seen the emergence of Londinium, modern-day London, into a thriving trading port and centre of commerce. These settlements and others were built or expanded upon by the invaders, and were invested with the symbols of empire, temples to the gods, including of course the deified emperors, and military fortifications, as well as mainstay cultural sites such as baths and amphitheatres. What young Boudicca would have thought of this is unknown, but the ferocity of her anger in later years suggests that she wasn't exactly pro-Roman from the start. Her name is also worth dwelling upon. Now, as a child, I grew up calling her Bodicea, as I imagine many of you will have done, but this is the result of a bit of a slip of the medieval quill, which has somehow survived down the centuries. 
Her name is derived from the Celtic word Buddha, which means victory, which means that if she were born today, she would have been called Victoria, and this will become important in the next episode. Our only description of her is given by Cassius Dio on the eve of battle, who describes her as, quote, In stature she was very tall, in the glance of her eye most fierce, and her voice was harsh. A great mass of the tawniest hair fell to her hips. Around her neck was a large golden necklace, and she wore a tunic of diverse colours, over which a thick mantle was fastened with a brooch. In this description, she is described as being both a fierce warrior and also of being a wealthy woman, with the description of the large necklace and the brooch. At some point, she married Presutagus, king of the Iceni, a client kingdom of Rome based in modern East Anglia, and had two daughters with him. Unfortunately, we don't know their names. While some of the British tribes became thoroughly Romanized and others entirely rejected Roman rule and fought on, the Iceni were somewhere in the middle. They were a client kingdom and accepted this position reluctantly as a necessity, but they didn't go in for all that foreign rubbish. They didn't drink wine, wash with olive oil, or adopt Roman-style pottery. Their first mention in the sources is by Tacitus during the Roman war against Caractacus in 46, a Celtic resistant leader against the invasion. Tacitus describes the Iceni then as, quote, a powerful community not yet broken in battle, as they had voluntarily acceded to our alliance. He presents them as being the most powerful force at Caractacus's last stand. They chose the field of battle, but were overwhelmed by the Romans. He wrote, quote, By the Icenian defeat, all were wavering between war and peace, were reduced to quietude. It is not known whether Presutagus was king during this revolt, but it seems that by 60, the Iceni's relationship with the occupiers had returned to normal. Indeed, it is likely that relations would have been quite friendly, and there was a good reason for this. The Iceni were a wealthy tribe, attested to both by Tacitus and by archaeological digs that have unearthed numerous hordes of gold and silver coins, jewellery and ingots in the area under their control. This wealth was a guarantee of good relations between Rome and the Iceni. Prasutagus was keen to safeguard his wealth and status, and so was incentivized to keep peaceful relations with the Romans, while the invaders, continuously short of cash thanks to the cost of occupying this cold, wet island on the edge of the world, would want to make nice with this nice source of tax revenue. Prasutagus's main point of contact with Rome would have been through Suetonius Paulinus, the governor of Britannia, and his procurator, Decianus Catus, who was basically the chief tax collector. Now, tax collectors are probably history's most disliked people, along with Nazis and traffic wardens. It seems that, around this time, the tax burden on the British tribes was getting greater and greater, The cost of all those new statues and temples in these new Roman towns and cities had to be borne by someone, and those someones were the very people that Rome had evicted in order to build those monuments and cities. Bit like being evicted from your house and then being forced to pay the landlord's mortgage. The position of a client king like Presutagus was somewhat nebulous, as they were responsible both to Rome and their people. 
And while Britons had their own ways of choosing their rulers, Rome had other ideas. This could make succession a very tricky business. And mindful of this, Prasutagus made great pains in his will to try to make this process as smooth as possible. According to Tacitus, quote, The Icenian king Prasutagus, celebrated for his long prosperity, had named the emperor as his heir, along with his two daughters, an act of deference with which he thought would place his kingdom and household beyond the risk of injury. He also made his wife, Boudicca, regent through the transition until their children became of age. Now, this was a fairly common procedure and was designed to make sure that the Romans got their cut and that one or both of his daughters could rule as queen unmolested when they came of age. However, the procurator Catus had other ideas. See, the arrangement that Prasutagus had with Rome wasn't a treaty between two nations, it was one between him personally and the emperor. This meant that on his death in 60 CE, any agreements that he had with Rome were hereby dissolved. Now, Governor Paulinus was away at the time, fighting a war against the Druids in North Wales, and so Catus was in charge. And what he saw was a wealthy tribe, rich for the pickings, that had just dropped into his lap. And so instead of honouring the will, he did, you know, the other thing. The excuse given was that while it was quite customary for women to rule in the British tradition, this was not the done thing under Roman law and custom. The idea was quite revolting to them, with the example of Cleopatra hanging over the Roman collective consciousness. And so, on his death, Catus seized all of Prasutagus's assets, the entire Icenian treasury, and placed all their land under direct Roman control. In Tacitus's words, quote, His kingdom was pillaged by centurions, his household by slaves, as though they had been prizes of war. All the chief men of the Icenians were stripped of their family estates, and the relatives of the king were treated as slaves. To make matters worse, Prasutagus and other British tribal leaders had been given from time to time gifts of money and treasure in order to make nice. Well, Catus now claimed that these hadn't been gifts at all. They had been loans, and they needed to be repaid. Now, with interest. Boudicca, as you might imagine, was not exactly thrilled by this and protested against the treatment. The Roman response was absolutely brutal. Queen Boudicca was flogged and her daughters were raped. This was obviously a terrible and traumatic event for Boudicca and her daughters. But quite apart from the physical and sexual violation that occurred, which of course cannot be underestimated... It was also an assault on their rights. It is very likely that all three of them were Roman citizens at the time. Roman citizenship came with responsibilities, such as having to pay taxation, but it also came with perks. It gave you legal protections and status under Roman law. Theoretically, a Roman citizen should be able to walk from the Atlantic coast in Iberia to the Persian Gulf, free in the knowledge that, if they came to harm then the full force of Roman justice would be hammered down upon the perpetrators. It was like a golden ticket. 
Now, Boudicca and her family likely did not have the top-tier citizenship, but even so, they expected to be treated as Roman citizens, not as spoils of war. Prasitagus had been a friend of Rome. His family would have been too. So after all that, for Boudicca and her daughters to be treated in this manner like common slaves was both a grave humiliation and an insult to everything they had done for Rome. And more than that, the rape of Boudicca's daughters had potentially catastrophic long-term consequences, not only for them, but by extension the entire tribe. By raping these young women, potentially girls, it's hard to say, you were taking something very important to people at the time their virginity. They would be viewed as spoiled goods and could call into question their legitimacy, potentially ending their rule before it even begun. And that's before you consider the possibility that they could be carrying the child of their Roman rapist. It doesn't bear thinking about for us, but it is all Boudicca and her children would have on their minds at this stage. And of course, you can't underestimate the human factor here. Boudicca clearly was a proud woman and a loving mother. To be whipped like a common criminal, for her own daughters to be raped, was offensive and repulsive, even without those other considerations that I just described. Rome had taken her lands, her pride, and her daughter's future. It had violated them all in the most vile way possible. The Romans saw her as fundamentally inferior, both thanks to her race and her gender. They didn't see her as worthy of treatment as an equal, not even close. This was the great turning point in Boudicca's story, the moment when she is transformed into a fierce and ferocious warrior, when Jekyll became Hyde, when Bruce Banner became the Hulk. Procurator Decianus Catus clearly thought that the whipping of Boudicca and the rape of her daughters would humiliate the Queen of the Iceni, make her submit to their power, both masculine and martial, and subjugate both herself and her people to Rome. Instead, he had lit the touch paper on one of the great rebellions of the early empire. As I said earlier, the majority of the Roman army in Britannia, as well as its commander, Governor Paulinus, was in North Wales at the time. The island was otherwise largely at peace. The cities lightly defended. No trouble had been expected. Yet clearly, unrest and resentment had been bubbling away among the British tribes, as once Boudicca had lit the touch paper, the whole region went up in flames. She gathered an army of tens of thousands and descended upon the city of Camludunum, modern Colchester. This was the capital of the province, and was replete with statues and temples to Roman emperors and gods, as well as a theatre and a senate house. The city had once been the home of the Trinovantes tribe, but had been seized to become a veterans colony, a place for retired Roman soldiers to live and cultivate after their service in the legions. All of this had been paid for by heavy taxation on the Britons, and was thoroughly resented. While they toiled, their occupiers became fat and lazy, living off the spoils of victory. 
It's no surprise, then, that the Trinovantes were a key part of Boudicca's uprising. Procurator Catus, who had been responsible for starting this rebellion, dispatched a few hundred men from Londinian and ordered the 9th Legion, the only serious Roman force available to him, to defend the city. But they were too far away and would not arrive in time. Camlodunum had no walls and a paltry garrison. It was easily overrun, and soon Boudicca and her allies were flooding into the city, killing and burning everything in their path. Those Romans that were still inside, mostly the old and the sick, huddled together in the temple of Claudius, hoping to seek sanctuary there. They were defended by what soldiers there were, and they tried to hold out until the reinforcements arrived. They knew the 9th Legion was on their way, maybe they could yet be saved. But no. After a two-day siege, the temple was breached, and there would be no pity for anyone inside. Everyone inside Camladunum that had not gotten out before Boudicca arrived were either put to the sword or were burned alive along with the city. It's worth saying here, at this point, that although I have referred to Boudicca as our heroine, I am not trying to paint her here as someone enjoying some sort of moral high ground. She was treated with violence and she meted it out in equal measure. This was no virtuous uprising. It was bloody and destructive, and as many innocents were killed by British hands as by Romans. There is no mistaking the message that Boudicca was sending here. Rome, your time has come. Leave this island or die by our sword. Boudicca didn't stop to enjoy her victory, and instead set an ambush for the oncoming 9th Legion that was marching to Camlodunum's defence. They had no idea that the city had already fallen, still less that they were walking into a trap. This Roman army numbered a few thousand men, and so were massively outnumbered by the Britons. Caught by surprise, they were unable to organise the defence. Much like Varus's Augustan legions in the Teutoburg Forest, they were overwhelmed and annihilated almost to a man. Only its commander and a few senior officers managed to escape the carnage. Meanwhile, over in Wales, Governor Paulinus, fresh from mopping up what was left of the Druids, heard about Boudicca's rebellion, the raising of Camlodunum, and the destruction of the 9th Legion. He was a skilled and experienced commander, and knew that he needed to act fast if he was to put out this fire. With the 9th Legion now gone only three Roman legions remained in Britannia. He had the 14th and the 20th legions with him in Anglesey, and there was also the 2nd legion, which was currently in the southwest, in the region that is now Exeter. He needed to move with all haste, gather his forces, and face down the insurgents. He marched his two legions at quick pace across the country to Londinium, which was the next target in Boudicca's crosshairs. When he got there, he found that his procurator Catus had fled to Gaul, and that the commander of the 2nd Legion refused to obey orders and was staying put in Devon. This was a very serious blow, and forced Paulinus to make a very difficult decision. Landinium was a trading centre, not a military fortress. It had even fewer defences than Camlodunum, and even that had not been able to withstand a Boudican assault. The troops that he had with him were all that he had, 
He couldn't risk them in such an unadvantageous defence. He therefore decided to sacrifice the city and withdraw. This can't have been an easy decision, because he knew what would be the fate of those he was leaving behind. According to Tacitus, quote, The laments and tears of the inhabitants, as they implored their protection, found him inflexible. He gave the signal for departure, and embodied in the column those capable of accompanying the march. All who had been detained by the weakness of sex, by the lassitude of age, or by local attachment, fell into the hands of the enemy. Landinium suffered the same fate as Camelodunum. Anyone who had not escaped were killed and the city was burned to the ground. And then the same fate fell to the town of Verulanium, which is modern St Albans, the former centre of the Catavalonians, the tribe that had led the initial resistance against Rome. Both Tacitus and Cassius Dio make pains to stress the atrocities committed by Boudicca's forces. Tacitus says, quote, Roman citizens and allies fell in the places mentioned, for the enemy neither took captive nor sold into captivity. There was none of the other commerce of war. He was hasty with slaughter and the gibbet, with arson and the cross, as though his day of reckoning must come, but only after he had snatched his revenge in the interval. In his account, Tacitus portrays the Britons as being on the ultimate death ride. They weren't there for plunder or riches. What use would they have for slaves or for gold? All Boudicca and her soldiers wanted was to burn and kill until either all of the Romans were dead or they had been defeated. Cassius Dio is somewhat more graphic in his telling. Quote, Those who were taken captive by the Britons were subjected to every known form of outrage. The worst and most bestial atrocity committed by their captors was the following. They hung up naked the noblest and most distinguished women and then cut off their breasts and sewed them to their mouths in order to make the victims appear to be eating them. Afterwards, they impaled the women on sharp skewers run lengthwise through the entire body. All this they did, the accompaniment of sacrifices, banquets and wanton behaviour. It's notable in Cassius Dio's telling that he emphasises the crimes committed against women, especially rich women. Here, he is contrasting the image of woodenhood that he liked and contrasts it with that which he didn't like, i.e. the masculine Boudicca. He also makes reference to human sacrifice and cannibalism, as well as violent sexual imagery. The destruction of these three Roman settlements was so total that there is still some physical evidence of it today. Indeed, one of the only bits of archaeological evidence that confirms that this uprising ever happened is the so-called Boudican destruction layer, a visible layer of red and black that can be seen in the rock profile in certain parts of Colchester and the City of London. What is notable, however, is that no human remains have been found with them. This does suggest that Cassius Dio's portrayal of torture and death is probably overblown. For there to be no remains in the record, it either suggests that every single person died in the flames, or, more likely, that they were properly cremated. However they died, in total, maybe as many as 70,000 Romans had died in the uprising. 
and the Boudican juggernaut appeared irresistible. With the cowardly Second Legion preparing to make their escape, all that stood in the way of Boudicca liberating the whole island from Roman occupation was the 10,000 men under Paulinus's command. So far, Boudicca had destroyed three towns and a Roman legion, and her forces numbered at least 100,000, and possibly as many as a quarter of a million. It depends on whose numbers you believe. But, and this is a big but... Boudicca had yet to fight a pitched battle against a prepared Roman army. And while Paulinus' men were low on supplies and hopelessly outnumbered, there are few forces in history as formidable as a prepared Roman legion of the early empire. And it is there that I will end the show for this week. We're back on our usual fortnightly schedule from now on, so we'll be back in two weeks the second and final part of Boudicca's story, where we look at her final battle against the Romans and her enduring legacy as an English heroine. There we will discover how a stalwart against empire managed to become a rallying cry for the largest imperial state the world has ever seen. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.